All right. Hey, we're going to uh, get ready to introduce the speaker in just a second. So if you guys can uh, just kind of go ahead and finish up your thoughts there. Um, my name is Ricardo, one of the pastors here. Normally, Jim Mullins is the person who leads this, but Jim's in D.C. praying with Obama or something like that. And so... Um, I get the opportunity to in- introduce our speaker. Now, I do want to, I cannot take credit for this because this was completely Jim's idea to provide for us a speaker that would be able to kick off our 2016 uh, first Wednesdays. And here's what I can tell you. So Dr. Kurt Thompson, who's going to come up here in a second, um, works in D.C. Um, he's a psychiatrist. He has his own private, excuse me, in Virginia, his own private practice there. He's the author of a couple books. One is Shame on Shame. The other one is The Anatomy of the Soul. That's one I personally read and would highly, highly recommend. Um, he's also started something called Being Known. And uh, Being Known is an organization he started to be able to provide resources, uh, programs, as well as seminars for people who are exploring the connections between neurobiology as well as spiritual practices. And so some of the things you'll be able to hear today is how does this thing work here and how does it relate when it comes to our spiritual practices. And then also afterwards, we'll have a Q&A, which he can talk about mental health and some other questions that we may have um, that relates to the brain. Now, personally, I got opportunity to eat with him earlier. And what I can say, and I can't say this about everybody, is what this particular person gives off is a level of authenticity that cannot be rehearsed or practiced. He genuinely cares about people. Um, pastorally, it's something that he's able to embody that we hope that everybody in our congregation can. That is a deep appreciation and abiding relationship with Jesus, an understanding of theology of who you are before the Lord and a relationship with him. Also, being able to care about your craft and your vocation and whatever it is that God's called you to do. And I believe that Dr. Thompson's been able to embody both of those things. And so we are definitely blessed to be able to have him with us tonight. And clearly, I know you guys are excited because this is more people than we've ever had at a first Wednesday. So would you guys put your hands together for Dr. Thompson? More people than ever before. Wow. To hear a shrink. You, you wouldn't, or, or they're all just like really interested in like group therapy, like on a large <laughs> scale. So, uh, wow, thanks so much for coming. Um, I'll, uh, my, my wife will be so happy. I can, I can like be really proud of all this to tell her like how many people came to hear me because, you know, she otherwise might be surprised. I should probably take a picture of you just to prove that there are <laughs> this many people here in the room. So, um, just uh, so a little bit about me, uh, other than that I'm a psychiatrist, which would, might be the most scary statement that I make. Um, I am from Ohio, so I'm an Ohio State Buckeye football fan. And, and, uh, but, but I also um, have a deep love for uh, the North Carolina Tar Heel basketball team. Not quite sure how. Thank you. Um, uh, let's see. I was uh, born, uh, reared in Ohio, uh, and I'm the fourth of four sons. Uh, my parents were 45 when I was born, and my brothers were 18, 16, and 11. Hmm, yeah, do, do the math. And, um, and so in, in, in 1962, when I was born, uh, you know, there were not many people who were 45 who were having babies. People were worried. And people would, like, would, so when my parents got pregnant with me, you know, they would want to say, like, Lewis and Betty, like, what were you doing? Well, well we know what you were doing. But, I mean, like, we, what, what were you thinking? They didn't really have a good answer for that. But uh, 
other than that, other, I mean, those, those are some, you know, vital statistic things about me. Um, and I, well, I guess I, I would also add, so uh, two of my brothers, uh, one 11 years ago and one a year and a half ago, I lost a cancer. Uh, I lost my dad when I was 17. And uh, my mom died about 11 years ago as well uh, at the age of 86. And uh, those things are important just because, like, like look, um, everybody who is here, everybody, uh, is coming from some place uh, that is mixed in its uh, beauty and its pathos. Everybody. And uh, if we're here, um, ostensibly we're here because uh, something about following Jesus intrigues us, at the very least. Or it is the thing that we want to do more than anything else in the world. We want to follow Jesus. Would that be fair to say? But can we say, I said this today at lunch, following Jesus is really hard work. It's, if you're serious about it, it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. Now, we live in a culture that doesn't want anything to be hard, and especially it doesn't want following Jesus to be hard. And so you're going to hear that if you're going to follow Jesus, somehow this should be easy. I want to like, just remind you that the fact that it's not means you're not crazy. That means something coming from a guy like me. <laughs> because if I were to tell you you were, you should be worried. So one of the reasons, maybe the first reason that I am really grateful to be here is because if it's hard to follow Jesus, then I don't want to be doing that by myself. And it's good to be in a room full of people who are trying to do that and who know how hard it can be. And part of that difficulty comes with the fact that, like, we're just, we're humans and we're broken, and as much as we want to love Jesus, as much as we want to respond to God's love and love our neighbor and love our family and our spouses and our kids and um, all that, uh, the reality is I don't do this very well. In fact, I tell people that I'm a professional. I'm, I'm not just a sinner. I'm a professional sinner. I think that anybody who does anything for a really long time and is really good at it should be called a professional. And that's what I do. And I do it most days. I do it several times most days. And that's part of what is difficult about following Jesus. You see, part of what's hard uh, about this work and this life is that uh, we have brains. Now, that's not a bad thing for me, like because otherwise I'd be out of a job if we didn't have brains. Uh, and I, I told this at lunch today, like I'm from Washington, D.C., where a psychiatrist will never be out of a job. <laughs> Elections coming up. They're all anxious before, they're all depressed afterwards. I can't lose. I love my city. But it is difficult for us to follow Jesus because we have minds that make it difficult for us to follow Jesus. St. Paul says, look, in Romans 7, look, uh, paraphrase, like the things that I'm supposed to do, I don't do. And the things I'm not supposed to do, I do them. I'm screwed. 
Well, he didn't say that, but you know what I mean. He says, like, I'm in trouble. I can't, I can't find a way out of this. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin? We who follow Jesus believe that we aren't just Christians. If we follow Jesus, we believe that we are embedded in a grand narrative a grand story in which God who has created is taking this place someplace. Amen? And that we are in the middle of it. And that we are being called and asked by God to be co-creators of a world of goodness and beauty in which we are practicing for the new heaven and new earth that is coming. But I don't do that very well. And I'm always looking for help looking for ways in which I can do this more effectively, looking for ways in which my mind can, in fact, be renewed, as St. Paul writes about. I'd like to be able to not worry about tomorrow, for today has enough worries of its own, as Jesus asked us, commanded us to do. I don't do that very well. I, like, I worry all the time. We, like, I, I'm one of these guys where I say, do what I say, not what I do. Because I tell my patients, you know, we take care of all kinds of people in our office, including adolescents. And we tell our patients, we tell our parents of our adolescents, don't worry about your kids because God's not worried about them either. And they say, well, he should be. <laughs> and we're actually not very happy with him if he's not. But you know what I mean? Like, we're all we're Like, we think God should be more worried than he apparently is. Because I'm so good at being worried and why am I not able to do that why is it how is it that we're going to come to a gathering like this tonight and we're going to sit with people that we love and who love us and people that we believe would love us if they even knew us more but we because they're right really or maybe not if, if if they knew us but I mean because we're in this body of people who are really wanting to do this wanting to love one another And we say that one of the reasons that this happens is because uh, the brain is a really hard, challenging, difficult organ to get to change. It's difficult to get our minds to change. So I want to give you two stories of people for whom it was difficult to get their mind to change. So the first story is that of of a man who uh, grew up in a northern state in the United States, Uh, a state that I won't name, but that has lots of lakes in it. (laughs) Begins with the letter M. (laughs) And this is a guy who was the uh, youngest of six children. And who, when was eight years old in January, and in January, I don't know if you know, in Minnesota, well, but that's not the state because I I didn't name that. In, 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 In one of those cold states, in January, like, it's really cold. And they lived on a farm, and the farm had a creek. And on this day, this particular school day, when he was getting ready to leave for school and had finished breakfast and had washed his hands, his father asked him, did you wash your hands in hot water? And he said, yes, he did. And the reason that he lied to him when he said, yes, he did, was because he was in a hurry and he couldn't get the hot water on. And he knew that if he said, no, I didn't, that he was going to be in for trouble. And his father said, well, let's go see how hot that water is. And, of course, he goes in and the water's not hot. And he said, I really want to show you what cold water is all about. And so his father marches this eight-year-old boy out to the creek, makes him take his shoes and socks off, and has him stand in the creek 
It's January. There's ice in the creek. Who does that? But he's now 59 years old in my office trying to be a follower of Jesus, trying to salvage a marriage that is headed for disintegration faster than he can stop it. What do you think that kind of trauma for an eight-year-old has to do with what's happening in his marriage? I will tell you a lot. If we are working, if we are living together as followers of Jesus to help God co-create a world of goodness and beauty, what do we do if we've run into a problem where in which I come home, anybody here married? Uh-huh. Okay. Know who I'm dealing with. So my couple comes home uh, one day uh, from work and they have a fight. Anybody here had a fight with your spouse within the last hour? They have a fight. And if they, and when they have the fight in the middle of the fight, uh, and, and the reason that they're having a fight is because he was supposed to have called his mother-in-law that day on her birthday, which he had promised to do, which, of course, he hasn't done. And it's not the first time that he's not done something that he promised that he would do. Of course, no one in this room would ever fall into that same trap. And so his wife was really angry. And when she started to call him on this, at one point in the argument, he just leaves the kitchen, goes out and gets in his car and takes off. I find out about this in the office later. And the first thing I want to know is, like, you know, uh, psychiatrists usually want to be really empathic, right? We want to care about it. So why, could you, how, why are you so stupid? <laughs> like, what are you, like, you're giving us men a, ba- a really bad name here. Don't you, you, no, if you were to ask him, why did you do that? He might say and did say, well, you know, there are times when I'm just, I'm worried that when she gets so angry, she's been angry before, and when she gets angry, she just blows. And I just don't want to be around for that. He also said, but I also know that there are times when I've been so angry that I've said something that I've regretted that I can't take back. And I didn't want to do that. So I just got in the car and I took off. He did not say, I think what was happening to me was I was having an implicit memory experience of when I was 10 years old. And when my father, who was an alcoholic and raging, would come home, the only escape I would have would be to leave the house, go get on my bike and take off. You see, that's an example of what our memory does implicitly. He wouldn't be aware that he was remembering anything. He thinks he's getting in the car to escape his wife when really what his brain is doing is remembering what he needs to do to leave his dad. Does that make sense? I want to suggest to you that everybody in this room, more than we'd like to admit, have things that happen to us in our memories that we don't even know is taking place, that are shaping the choices of the interpersonal relationships that we have, and it's going to happen to you tonight before you go to bed. And you're going to wonder, where did that come from? This is where learning more about the way the brain works, learning more about how the brain and relationships work together, give us a better sense of what it means for us to live in the biblical narrative. You might say, like, Kurt, what does all that neuroscience mumbo-jumbo have to do? Well, we don't call it mumbo-jumbo because we think we're really special. Okay. <laughs> what do you think neuroscience has to do with following Jesus? 
In the first chapter of Romans, St. Paul says this. From the beginning, mankind has known, by seeing the creation, God's power and God's nature. We live in a world in which typical Christian motifs are symbols, our language that we use to talk about the experience of faith doesn't make much sense to most people. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, but that is the case. But I'll tell you what they will listen to. People will listen to neuroscience. People will listen to neuroscience because it is like God. I'll tell you, here's an example. If you want to sell things, you put a brain on the picture of your marketing. If, like, I, I, no kidding, I saw this mar- that advertisement for yogurt. And they have a brain on the picture for yogurt. And they're selling more yogurt because they're like, what does the yogurt have to do with the brain? I have no idea. But this is what they're doing. People pay attention to science for lots of different reasons, not least of which because of the place it holds in our social strata. But more than any other form of science, people pay attention to what neuroscience tells us. Neuroscience is part of the creation, and I want to suggest to you that that is a part of the creation that God now uses to help him tell his gospel story. In the 17th chapter of Acts, it is written, and God will not leave himself without a witness. He will use what is at his disposal, especially if the thing that is at his disposal is the thing that he's made. And so when we look at the question of like, St. Paul saying, therefore, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does he mean by that? What does it mean to be transformed? What does it mean to be renewed? What does it mean for us to allow neuroscience to help us learn again what God is doing in Jesus and has been doing from the beginning? So here's an example. Um, when we uh, talk about, we talk about many things about the brain. I'm going to just give us a couple of examples, right? So um, one example is uh, a notion of what we call neuroplasticity. Anyone ever heard of that word? Some hands, neuroplasticity, right? So here's the, here's the idea. The idea is that um, those people who raise your hands, I hope you're, like you know that you're really impressing the people around your tables. <laughs> right? Okay. See me afterwards. Um, <laughs> Okay, so, so here's the thing. If you want to change your mind, literally, if I spend a lot of time, if I spend a lot of time doing things that I don't want to do, I've developed a bad habit, and I want to change that habit. If that habit is going to change, I necessarily am going to have to change the firing pattern of the neurons in my brain. Because there's nothing that we do that does not involve some form of, of firing neurons in your brain. It's always all connected. There's no such thing as the part of my mind that is subjective over here that is separate from the part of my brain that is active in here. They're never apart. So if I want to renew my mind, it means I'm going to have to change the direction and the active pattern of the neurons as they fire. Now, here's really good news. 25 years ago, If you had a stroke, the news was not good because you would get physical therapy a couple times a day for about six weeks, an hour at a time, and then we would wish you luck. But now, 
If you were to have a stroke, we would put you in a rehab center where you would work your tail off for 10 hours a day every day because we know that there are things that we could ask the brain to do that the brain can begin to do explicitly because of the brain's capacity to grow new neurons, grow new neurons to be bigger, and have those neurons be more connected to other new neurons that 25 years ago we didn't think it could do. This is really good news, yes? Well, it's just important to know. The brain was always able to do that. We just didn't know this. This is not like the brain's doing new stuff. Neuroscience doesn't tell us about new things. Neuroscience is just telling us what we haven't ever known. But that has always been the case, right? In Ecclesiastes, behold, there is nothing new under the sun. But if we want our minds to change, we talk about this notion of neuroplasticity, this capacity for the neurons to shift in their direction. So do you think it would be a good idea for you to be able to change your mind in ways you want to? You want to do that? Okay, so I'm, here I'm going to give you six things. Six things, and you're going to wonder, like, what's this got to do with the Bible? Well, we're going to show you, all right? So here are six things, six things that if you want to enhance your brain's capacity to change that you can do. Number one, aerobic exercise. If you are more aerobically active, you are more able to facilitate the brain's capacity to change in directions that you would like. That's number one. Pretty simple, but not very easy for us to do. Number two. Sleep. Just sleep. Just sleep. Just go ahead and go to sleep, right? Because most of us don't sleep very much. If we are, uh, if we're like any, most, most average Americans, we are sleeping two hours per day less as adults than we did 100 years ago. Not so bad for one night. Really bad if you do this for 30 years. Not to mention the fact that less sleep in this way increases your risk for Alzheimer's disease. But it's also, to sleep more also means that we are not giving in to the cultural mandate that we must do more and more and more and more and more and more. Because we're afraid that if we don't do more, something really, really, really bad might happen. Like I might miss that one email. (laughs) And so I will check it right before I go to bed while I pull the covers over and the laptop lid goes closed simultaneously. (laughs) Oh, but fortunately, my iPhone is sitting right next to me. (laughs) Right? I can tell, like, there are pulse rates that are going up already because you know that I'm going to say, like, that's a bad idea, but I can't afford to not have my iPhone with me in my bed. (laughs) Diet, number three. Americans eat too quickly and we eat too much. Here's a simple exercise. For a week, try this. Cook your meal at night, your evening meal, and then eat only half of it. Save the next half for lunch the next day. I dare you. Here's step number two. Take at least 45 minutes to eat the half of a meal that you're going to. Number three, make sure that you don't eat alone. You're like, shh, I'm going to do gosh, I've got to eat longer and sleep more. There will be no time to read my iPad. I, I... <laughs> Exercise, sleep, diet. Number four, meaningful novelty. How many of us are doing things that we really desire to do creatively? Many of us are not 
And the reason we're not is because we're too busy doing the things that we're worried that we're not going to get done. But by creative novelty, I don't mean like, so for instance, if you wanted to, like you could memorize, well, they don't have phone books anymore really, but if you had a phone book, right, you could memorize the phone book and that would be novel. <laughs> it would be ridiculous, but it would be novel. <laughs> but it would not be meaningful. What are those things that we can meaningfully do that evoke the requirement of my brain's expansion? And by expansion, I don't mean that your head gets bigger and bigger and bigger although that would be an interesting phenomenon. <laughs> what I mean by this is that we actually have to require more and more neural activity in order to do this. If I'm going like, to get better and better at playing the piano, it's going to require more and more of me. If I'm going to learn how to do more and more painting work, if I'm going to learn a, a foreign language, these are important things to do. All creative work. And I want to suggest to you, uh, like, think about this for a second. You think, like, okay, where does the Bible part show up here? Genesis chapter 1. The writer of the text says that God says this. Let us make mankind, 127. Let us make mankind in our image and let man then rule over the earth. Let man live like we live. First, we are, we are created as a community and then we are created and called to create like God creates. But most of us are not living life as creative beings. We are living life more like machines. Simply plugged into whoever has designed whatever the thing is that we're supposed to be doing that we do so automatically that requires that we are looking at our machines before we go to bed. Creative novelty. The next is mindfulness practices. I don't know how many of you in this time, in this space, in this world, practice something like uh, the Jesus prayer. Anybody ever heard of the Jesus prayer? You know the Jesus prayer? Maybe raise your hand if you've heard of the Jesus prayer. Okay, all right. It, is, it goes like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There are different versions of this, but for the most part, it's Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. You may or may not be familiar with this, but there are entire communities, entire communities of monks and nuns that are devoted to living their days out practicing saying nothing but that prayer. And you're like, that's whacked, right? We think this. That's a, that's a technical term, whacked. No, not only is it not whacked, but these are people who are doing that which we would be so much better off if we were willing to do. Can you imagine how hard it would be for you to spend, uh, I mean, like three minutes, let alone 30 minutes, simply meditating and practicing that prayer over and over and over again? You know how hard that is to do? And the reason it's hard is because our attention muscles have atrophied. And if we don't pay attention to what we're paying attention to, the world will decide for you what you will pay attention to. And what we pay attention to is what we remember, and what we remember becomes our anticipated future. And it doesn't matter that you believe in an eschaton of a new heaven and a new earth. Even though I say I believe that, what I really believe will be the things that I'm paying attention to. And if what I'm paying attention to is my anxiety-laden self that is too afraid that I'm going to miss the next thing, like I've got, I don't just have FOMO, I've got like cosmic FOMO. <laughs> right? 
If that becomes what we practice, I will tell you that the new heaven and new earth will arrive and it will crush us because we will not have been practicing for heaven. If we are not practicing mindfulness, and there are a whole slew of different exercises that we can do. Remember, what are we doing? We're just getting our brains ready to be more plastic. And the last thing is this. The last thing is uh, deeply committed, intimate relationships. Relationships in which we are deeply known. Let me ask you this question. Could you, if I asked for them, give me the three names, each of you here, could you give me the three names of the people who, when I polled them, they could tell me absolutely everything there is to know about you? And by everything, I don't just mean the vital statistics. They know where you were born. They know your address. I don't mean that. They know the last time you looked at pornography. They know the last time you gossiped about your pastor. They know the last time everything happened. They know your deepest fears. They know your worst shames. They know there's nothing they don't know. Nothing. This is the kind of community we are talking about. St. Paul writes this in the first letter to the church at Corinth, in the eighth chapter, in the second and third verse. There are those who believe they know, who do not know as they ought. But the person who loves God is known by God. Notice he doesn't say the person who loves God knows God. He says the person who loves God is known by God. We cannot be known by God if we are not known by people. Now, by this, I'm going to be very clear I didn't say God doesn't know us. I'm saying we do not have the experience of being known by God apart from having a bone and blood relationship with other people by whom we are that deeply known. But if we are serious about this, it will scare the living daylights out of us. Because what we're talking about, yes, we're talking about people knowing all those things and still deciding to stick around. And is this not what it means for Emmanuel to come? Jesus comes and says, I'm coming. I want to know everything there is to know about you, and I know it, and I'm still going to stick around. The human brain, more than anything else, is terrified of abandonment. It's it's not good for man to be alone, and the brain knows this. The brain knows that being apart, being separate, being left is its worst nightmare. Shame is how evil uses its weapon to create spaces of departure, to create departure, to create abandonment, to create this sense of like, if I don't do this well enough, you're going to find out this thing about me. And when you do, you're going to go. So our gentleman who grew up in that really cold state came to see me Because most of his adult life has been spent simply trying to make sure he doesn't do anything to make his wife so angry that she would in any way, shape, or form do something that would reenact for him what it feels like to have have himself be stuck back in in a raging river like when it's 20 below zero. How many of us here tonight are doing things routinely, daily, 
in which we wish we could follow Jesus in a different direction, but that whole neuroplastic change just doesn't seem to be coming. We keep waiting for that train, and it just isn't coming. I want to suggest to you that there are ways in which this world that God has created, this world of the mind, is a way, when we pay attention to it, is a way that he's using to come back to us in our time and space and say, I was really serious about what I'm doing in Jesus. I'm just as serious now as I was then. For those of us who've had those histories of trauma, for those of us who carry long stories of sadness, for those of us who don't even know that we carry them because we've been practicing so long trying to forget them, there's really good news. And the good news is that not just in Jesus, but in the body of Jesus, by whom he will do his work, he's coming to find us. He's coming to create for us the experience of being known and in that way begin to retell our story, begin to reactivate neuroplastic change in our brain such that our minds will be renewed. Here's the news. Yeah, it's true that when St. Paul talked and wrote, he was not a neuroscientist. And it's probably likely that he wouldn't have known much about the brain itself. But if Paul were here, I'm sure that when he hears this story about how the brain works, he would say, oh, of course. Well, of course it does. Because God is serious about real change. Our friend from that state up north has for now six years been doing work that has slowly but surely been bringing change about that has revolutionized his marriage because no longer does he have to submit his mind to the same terror of the same memory that he has for such a long time been subjected to. Does that make sense? And here's the thing. Like, we all got that stuff. Now, it might not have been, like, we might not have been the people whose parent did that to us, but we got whatever it is that we've got that we so long for Jesus to change. Here's some final questions, just some things to keep in mind as I close. Who are going to be the people, who are going to be the people by whom you are so well known through whom Jesus is going to do that work? Who are they going to be? Like, here's the news, like, you can't do it any other way. Right, my, my daughter, who is uh, just who graduated a year ago from Duke Divinity School, she and I have these, all these, these beautiful conversations now. And she said, you know, Dad, you know, when Paul, he, he does this thing and he changes, he mixes his pronouns in, in the same sentence, right? Singular pronoun, plural pronoun, singular pronoun, plural pronoun. And in that, in that, in that Romans 12 passage where he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I read that and I think like, okay, Kurt, I got to like work on renewing my mind. The word your and the word mine, those two words are plural. It's not your mind. It's your mind. Our minds will not be transformed apart from deeply connected community. The community that Jesus left us with, the community in which you are now living, the community in which Jesus wants to show us the way to show us what it means to be healed from shame, have our minds renewed, and our brains changed along the way. Thanks be to God. You have been a lovely audience.
Thank you ever so much for coming. So I'm gonna wait here. All right, um, and so before we start um, with the taking in questions and texting questions, want you guys to talk around your tables or in your rows or the people who are next to you start to get to know some people and let them know you as well. Um, what is something that you learned about the brain and what implications will that or should that have on your life? And so what is something that you learned today about the brain and what implications uh, could or should that have on your life? So why don't you guys go ahead and, and um, talk around your tables. All right, we're going we're gonna to begin uh, facilitating some questions here. And we're going to go ahead and just start. Okay, um, in Mark chapter 12, uh, verse 30, tells us to love the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does that mean to love the Lord with our minds? This is for me. All of these are for you. <laughs> They picked the one guy who has a hard time reading out loud to come do this, but I just wore the jacket. That's all. It's all you. Yeah, why didn't I think of that? Um, so uh, uh, let, me, let me ask you this. Uh, when you think about the mind, uh, what words come to mind? Uh, thoughts? Brain? Intellect? Knowledge? Memory, imagination, commitment. Oh, okay. Thinking, commitment. That's a that's a new one. Attachment. Okay. All right. So so all I would say that like all these words, none of these words are like not true. They're they're all true. They're all they're all like and helpful. So let me give you a uh, if it means to love the Lord our God with all of our mind, what is that with which we then love God? Fair question? So I'm going to give you a working definition. Now, a working definition from this field of interpersonal neurobiology. I want to say that, like, uh, you know, the Bible doesn't define the mind. It doesn't, doesn't define it. Like, the Bible doesn't define most, but really anything. It doesn't really define that. It. It's not the kind of book it is. You know, I wish that every time I was not even trying to, like, make a joke, that somebody would, like, people would laugh. <laughs> I wish I had this, but I need better luck, like, like, luck, like, I'm just like, it's Arizona luck. I think it must be, it must be it. Okay. All right, so, but here is a way to think about it, and then, then we'll walk through the definition. So I'm going to, you know, if, if you don't have the book yet, you should just go buy it. Lots of copies. And then, and you'll have the book. So here's the definition, and that way you won't have to write it down. So the mind is a process that is both embodied and relational that emerges within and between brains whose task it is to regulate the flow of energy and information. No, I only say it once. Got to buy the book. Right. Yeah, so uh, there's the answer to the question. Okay, all right, so, th so think about this for a second. Uh, 
The mind is an embodied and relational process. First of all, it's embodied. The mind is not limited to the brain. Uh, when you're anxious, how do you know that you're anxious? Right? Heart rate, sweaty palms, right? All these kinds of things. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Right? He doesn't say, don't you know that your mind or that your brain or that your heart is the temple? He said, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? If that's the case, that the Holy Spirit occupies the entire temple, if the Holy Spirit is going to try to get your attention, I would assume that he could do it in coming from any room in the temple he's occupying, which could be your heart rate, which could be a range of different things. But here's the thing. like Most of us don't pay attention to our bodies. Most of us don't. So what does it mean for me to love the Lord my God by paying attention to that part of my mind? So the mind is embodied and and it's relational. The brain, in and of itself, does not get to where it is apart from relational interactions. Relational interactions are affecting the brain all the time, everywhere we go, right? Sitting around your table right now, other brains are influencing your brain. It doesn't know how to not be influenced by that. Sometimes we work really hard to not be influenced by other people's brains, and it's really hard to do, right? And so we recognize that my mind is not just something that belongs only to me, right? Newborns, think about this for a second. Newborns come into the world, some, only six weeks, right? Seven weeks, right? Not the gentleman with the glasses. He's older than that, right? <laughs> Right, but the one who's really close to him, right? Six weeks, and at some point, that newborn looks at you. You bring a baby into a room, and adults just like lose their minds. It's just it's it's the sweetest thing that you see, right? Adults start to do all kinds of interesting things, like they make all these strange faces, right? They do all these strange noises when they're looking at the infant, right? The newborn, and then the newborn somehow captures the look of the adult, and then the newborn smiles. And the newborn smiles because the adult has been paying attention to the newborn. And as that adult's attunement hits the back of the retina of the eyes of that infant, it runs to the back of the brain, down into the brain stem, up through the thalamus, the hypothalamus, out into the prefrontal cortex, and the baby's lights turn on. That baby is being trained, is being, that baby's brain is being innervated, being connected by the activity, the intentional activity of the adult in the presence of that baby's mind. Does that make sense? In this way, and here's the thing. We, say, we like to say this. Every baby comes into the world looking for someone, looking for her. Looking for someone, looking for him. And it never stops. You walk into a room, and you hope to God that somebody's in the room looking for you. Right? We really hope this is true. This notion that our mind belongs only to me is a Western illusion. So it's now it's not so surprising when St. Paul says the renewal of your mind, transforming your mind. When he talks about it in the plural sense, we get a better sense of what it means by what the neuroscience is telling us. So the mind is both embodied, but it's also relational, but it's a process. It's moving all the time. Your mind is never inert unless you're like a 14-year-old boy, all right? Your mind is never static. It's constantly moving. The only thing that changes is its pace. Even when you're asleep, your mind is constantly moving. So it's a process. 
And this is important because we would say that we serve a God who's constantly moving. What is confusing to us is that when God is moving at a pace that is different than the one that we think he should be moving at, we start to interpret that as like God has stopped moving. Right? We'd like to believe that the table at which you're sitting is motionless. Right? Unless you get a bunch of physicists in here and they start to talk about quantum mechanics and they start to say that like all that table, all that solid stuff, it's mostly like just air. And you're like, like, dude, you need to see the shrink on the stage, right? Because like, 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 how does, like, how does mostly air just hold my cup of water? He said, well, that's the beauty of physics. That's what they always say. It's just the beauty of physics. <laughs> right? I don't think they have any idea what they're talking about, but it's the beauty of physics. But this is the point. We have no idea how limited our perceptions are of the physical universe, let alone God and his movement. The mind is constantly moving. It is a process that emerges. It's constantly emerging, constantly emerging. And here's one thing to know. The mind is constantly emerging in a direction away from Jesus or toward him. There's no two ways about it. We are emerging either away from Jesus or toward him. Away from each other or toward each other. The question when we leave here tonight, when we go home to our families, am I going to take those actions in the next hour, let alone the next day, the next week, that is going to enable me to move and emerge more closely connected to my spouse or farther away, to my children or farther away, in my workplace, to my boss and my employees or farther away? It's a process that emerges that then enables us to regulate the flow of energy and information. Notice I don't say control, we regulate. We are constantly just regulating the flow of energy and information. Energy is what we mean by all that electrochemical stuff that's banging around in our brains and our bodies and so forth. But all of that electrochemical energy is always represented, it's always represented by things that we interpret it to mean. If we were to take a probe, like open your skull up, take a probe, we wouldn't like to do that here tonight. We, we take a probe. We could touch a part of your brain, and you could imagine you could have a, a particular aroma that would come to your mind. Or we could touch another part of your brain, and you would like imagine the picture of an apple. Like, why is this all fascinating? Well, it's not just because people like to do these things to people's brains, but it's to recommend and to suggest that there's nothing that is meaningful to us that is not embodied. Right? All that electrochemical energy is something that we are always giving meaning to. Now, here's a question. Um, when our man from Minnesota, the state that shall not be named, when our man from Minnesota gives meaning to the interaction that he just had with his spouse, that meaning is going to be filtered through lots and lots and lots of years of neuroplastic memory. Lots and lots of years of trauma. And it's going to be really easy for him to misinterpret all kinds of things. We're, it's going to be really easy for us to misinterpret what the pastor really meant when he said what he said. Right? When my friend didn't return the email within an hour, I might interpret that in a certain way. Because the experience that I have of the email not coming is a way in which, is a way in which, don't we all sometimes just feel like that? Is that not true? We do. Every Sunday. Every, every. <laughs> that's, that's, that's odd. That, that, that's right on. Okay. Great. Yeah. 
I have no idea where I was. So, I, I th- so anyway, um, I, I, so I just want to say, like, th- so that's a working definition of the mind. So imagine if we're going to love, like we used to think uh, b- before like 10 minutes ago, we used to think like loving God with my mind is, means like I'm going to think the right thoughts. And now you're like, holy crap. I don't have, there is crap that is holy. I don't have, I don't have enough time to be thinking about my embodied relational processing emerging, blah, blah, blah. And the reason I don't have enough time is because I take so much longer at dinner and I have to sleep so much more. Like, I have no time to love God with my mind. Here's the thing. If I want to do this well, if I want to love God with all these parts, it also requires that I do it in community. Because, again, when my brain knows that it is not by itself, my brain knows that it is not by itself, there is so much more that it can do well. Okay, I'm, I know that I'm going off script. We're not going to get to these questions, are we? Uh, pro- Please, this is amazing. Okay, all right. Oh, so, okay, okay. All right. So a guy by the name of Jim Cohn, C-O-A-N. He's a neuropsychologist, a researcher at the University of Virginia. And Cohn has done some really amazing stuff with college students because they'll do anything for food. And, what he, and so one of the things that he, he did this one experiment where he, he, so he applies, he, he sticks them in a, what we call a functional MRI machine. So it checks blood flow and it can kind of check what part of the brain is turning on and active metabolically when that brain is under certain conditions. And so they test two things. The first thing he does, he applies a very mild shock stimulus to their foot. And they're going to check the spinal cord to see what kind of sensory input they get, like how distressing, how much pain do they have from the shock. But the other thing that they're doing by having them in the functional MRI machine is they test how distressing is it how emotionally distressing is it for them to have this experience? So they do this, and they, like, so they'll take 20 college students, and they'll do this experiment. And then they'll repeat the experiment. Only they'll make one change, one variable change, and that variable would be this. When they do it, the college student is asked to bring along with them a close loved one or a good friend who's going to hold their hand while the experiment's take, carried out. And here's what's interesting. All the data about their experience of physical pain, all that data is the same, right? Their sensation of physical pain is the same, but their experience of existential suffering drops precipitously. You see, we would say in the end that suffering is not just about pain that we experience. It is really about the degree to which we experience it alone, something that it is not good for man to be. The hard part is that we grow up in families sometimes where in which we learn that being close to people, being close to people is dangerous, right? If you're an eight-year-old whose father sticks you in a creek in January, your brain automatically knows that intimacy, closeness, being with people whose job it is to love you to the wall is life threatening. Why would you want to let anybody get close to you? And so, yes, you become a Christian, but there are like lots of rooms in your house where like you let, like Jesus gets to come into the foyer and maybe in like five feet into the kitchen. And that's as far as he gets to go. Or more properly, that's as far as we're willing to go with him. 
Because we know that when he gets closer, bad things are going to happen. Here's the good news. Jesus knows all about this. This whole crucifixion thing, like it was serious stuff, man. Have you ever seen a crucifix? I mean, when was the last time anybody here wear a crucifix? Wear a crucifix? Somebody might wear a crucifix. I don't know. One of the things you might notice about a crucifix, I don't know, describe it. Last time you saw one, what do you see about a crucifix? What? Jesus is on the cross. What do you notice about Jesus on the crucifix? Most times you see it. What? He's in pain. Head is dropped. Bloody. He's alone. How many of you routinely see crucifixes in which Jesus is not covered with a loincloth? If you Google crucifix images for crucifix, last time I did this, there's like 300 images. Only two of them could I find that actually demonstrate what happens at a crucifixion. Because when you're crucified, you're stark naked. And when you're crucified, I happened to have the privilege of being in Israel back in November, and I had some opportunity to see some of this stuff. And they said, when you're crucified, you're really only about seven feet off the ground. And you're really only about three feet away from the people who are passing by. Like, that's very different than what I see in the movies. So I just want to point this out. Jesus is far more willing to come much further into our shame than we are often even willing to allow him to come. He's already there. He's already been to your worst places. He's waiting for you to show up to join him. But here's the thing. The hard part about doing this is we can't, nor are we expected to do this by ourselves. If my brain is going to love God, I can't love it with the part of my brain that hasn't yet actually made contact with him. And the way that's going to happen is if I have people in my life who are asking me the question, Adam, where are you? Right? This is Genesis chapter 3. When God comes looking for Adam, and he's still looking. And he's asking us all the time, where are you? Where are you? Where are He's serious. Loving God with all of our mind means being in a context of community in which our minds can actually be known, be healed, and I would suggest then be liberated to co-create with God that which we have been destined from before the foundation of the world to do. Sorry, that was long-winded. That might have been more prophetic than the brain. I'm not even <laughs> But it was very prophetic in what I think we need as a church. Um, this next question, what do you make of neuroscience and demon possession or demonic possession? That's a stumper. Um, so, uh, okay, so I, I can tell you this. Um, I, I found, um, uh, I, I tell people routinely, look, any, any I, I don't deserve my life. Uh, like, like, I don't deserve to, I, I, I don't deserve to be in a room with you all who are working as hard as you're working to love Jesus. Like, who gets to, who gets to come to Arizona to do this? Most of my life, to the degree that anything good has come of it, has been because I've been the beneficiary of lots of people who've given things to me. 
And one of those people who've given things to me is a guy named Scott Peck. Now, some of you might be familiar with Scott Peck's work. And a long time ago, this psychiatrist, Scott Peck, wrote a book called People of a Lie. And People of a Lie is Scott Peck's after his conversion. Which, like, you know, like, here's the thing. Peck was, uh, in his 40s, a psychiatrist and came to Jesus. Right? These are things that only happen on other planets. <laughs> and so he wrote this book after his conversion, and he talks about, and the book is about what do we do about the problem of evil from the posture of a psychiatrist. And one of the things that he talks about toward the end of the book uh, is this very question about demon possession. Now, I, now, here, now here's the thing. Um, one of the things that we uh, want to do in our world uh, one of the things that the brain likes to do, I like to be able to compartmentalize things. I like to be able to know that this goes in this box and this goes in this box and this goes in this box because when I do that, then there's not going to be any confusion that I'm going to mix these things up and get this wrong. You with me? So I'd like to know, so one question that we would ask would be like, what do I make of neuroscience and demon possession? We would say, well, okay, um, in the Gospels, in the Gospels, uh, there were a number of different um, uh, scenarios in which the text tells us that their interpretation of what was happening was that a person was possessed by a demon, uh, and which modern-day scholars, who, as, like, as the last I knew, like, weren't actually there, right? right? Modern-day scholars and modern-day neurologists weren't actually there who would say something like, well, we believe that that person had a seizure disorder, right? That's, and that's often the case. Uh, because I was uh, about uh, 25 years, 25, no, no, long, almost 31, 32 years ago, I was in Jamaica, and we were working at a, an, at a boys' orphanage, and there was a young boy there, and they had very, very poor medical care, and I wasn't, I hadn't been to medical school yet, I wasn't aware of this, they had a boy who had a history, a chronic history of seizures, and he would start to seize, and they would just send him to bed. Now, they didn't know that that's what was, I mean, I don't know if they knew that that was taking place, but like, I wasn't even medically trained. Like, I knew that there was a problem here. But they would, it would be a way for them to just like, well, I think that he's got a problem. You're like, hmm. Hmm. All right, but, but, but seriously, you say, so, so the point being that, like, re, like, we have lots of different ways of naming these things. And at a certain time in history, we might name something as being demonically possessed. I mean, I give that a name. And that may be true. And that might have something to do with unseen world forces that has to do with the devil himself. I don't know. And at some point, it might lean into a space that might be exclusively about that. I can tell you that I am not the expert with that. Peck writes in his book about an experience he had with this kind of patient. So because I don't know much about that, uh, in our practice, we have people in the Northern Virginia area to whom we refer. If we feel like we're in over our head, we have some people who do this kind of work, who, um, who perform exorcisms, and, like, they, they do that. Like, that's not my bailiwick. But I will say this. Um, the very notion that we even think about, like, neuroscience and demon possession, like, are these two different things? Like, is, is it science or is it demons, right? Is it the brain? Is it an illness? Or is it something else, right? Is that really kind of the question that we're asking? Here's my question. How, like, why do we ask that question? What am I worried about if I don't know the answer to it? I want to suggest this. Look, 
we all want to, uh, and, and it, it's not unreasonable for us to ask questions like this in order for us to have answers that are actually helpful. We'd like to know because if it's going to be helpful to have an exorcist come in and do the thing that they do, that would be a good thing. But my worry about not having the answer to this is really based in something that took place back in Genesis chapter 3. You know, there is that thing called the knowledge of the tree, I mean, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? One of the ways that we can think about that tree is this. Like, first of all, imagine this for a second. Like, if God really, like, like, here's a tree, and here's a fruit, and don't eat it. Like, if he really didn't want me to eat the fruit, then I would say, like, plant the tree, like, out at the edge of the garden, where I'm just not really going to go. Why is the tree in the middle of the garden? Well, one of the things that I, that, that I think, even anthropologically, that that represents is that each one of us has something that is at our core, that is at the center of who we are, is good and beautiful, for which part of redemption includes our response to God saying no. But we live in a culture that doesn't really know how to say no very much. And in fact, actively, actively encourages us to say yes, 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 yes to things that ultimately are not very helpful, and that's difficult. But here's something else. One of the things about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is this. If I know things, the more I know, the more I'm actually able to navigate my life without your help. You with me? And the more I can navigate life without your help, the less likely you are to hurt me, to disappoint me, to shame me, to wound me, to let me to blah, 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 you just like make the list of the things that we like where, you know, life would just be better if it weren't for people. If we just had just like make this list over and over, like all these things. And so what I want to suggest is that sometimes we want these answers to these questions because I need to know that I know that I know so that there won't be any risk of me making any mistakes. There won't be any risk of shame ever finding me out that I will be found out to have, like, made the wrong choice, done the wrong thing, and so live into the destiny that the serpent was really inviting the man and the woman in Genesis 3 to participate in. That's probably the best I can do. That's good. Just stay standing because you're going to Oh, a paragraph. Good. (laughs) What common Christian beliefs about the soul actually come from the Bible versus paganism? For example... Is a soul actually like Casper the Friendly Ghost? Um, not even people, I don't know how many people grew up with Casper the Friendly Ghost. Um, or could it be something else like the combination of your physical body, brain, and memories? So, like, you can, again, you, you can leave tonight having learned a particular technique that we, that we offer every time we're doing interviews, right? And that's this question which I'm going to ask again, which, we, which I think is applied here, and that is, like, how will knowing the answer to this question be helpful? Right? Right? So you can, like, especially use this with your teenagers. <laughs> like, they won't know what to do. And you'll just sit back and say, how's that one? Yeah. Learned that tonight from a shrink from D.C. So, uh, so I'll just, I'll just, uh, Okay. I'll answer it with this. So about uh, four years ago, I was invited to uh, uh, travel to uh, spend some time uh, at um, 
Biola University, who does some really, really remarkable stuff. Every year, they uh, will pick a theme, and that theme will, uh, they will invite uh, visiting scholars in for two different semesters, like for a group, for, uh, one group for the first semester, another group for the second semester, to do like sabbatical work on the theme, doing scholarly work. It's really amazing stuff that they do. I mean, they're, I don't know if you know much about like, the, but they're really doing, in, in LA, doing some really, really super cool stuff. And uh, they, but at the end of the year, one of the things that they do with all, whatever this theme is, they like to have somebody come in and do a talk for the general public to kind of like translate whatever this stuff is that we're talking about. And so they asked, they invited me to come because the theme of their uh, year was neuroscience and the soul, right? So uh, if you know about Biola, Biola has a particular way of thinking about the soul. They would, the, 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 the faculty there, the professors there would suggest that, um, you know, our soul is something that is like uh, something kind of separate from me. Like they're like, I have one, right? I have a soul. And there's, and if you read the scriptures, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that that's, that's not an unreasonable position to take, okay? Like, where is my soul going to go? What happens to it when I, when I die? All those kinds of questions that are really for people who are, like, it's way above my pay grade, right, to figure out all those, those things. Now, just up the road from Biola, there is another school. Some of you have heard of it. It's called Fuller Theological Seminary. <laughs> Fuller has a very, very different anthropological view of the soul, the professors who work there. They have a view in which it's like the soul as an item, as a separate thing, doesn't so much exist as it is a way for us to talk about the nature of ourselves and that we are fully embodied, fully breathed beings, where in which, yes, they believe that like at the resurrection, we're going to be coming back as new creatures, right? But it's not like our soul is going to go off in limbo in between that time. Okay, so they have a different view. And here's the thing. Look, they are really wicked smart people who are in both of these institutions who believe different things about this. But we're sitting at lunch one day, and I asked one of the professors from one of the institutions, on which I said, uh, gosh, I mean, like, it's, like it's, it's striking to me. We've got people who love Jesus passionately, but who have very strong, passionate feelings about this notion of the soul. And I said, so what if it turned out, like, in the end, like, tomorrow at noon, like, there's a bulletin that's sent from heaven that says, dude, you're wrong. <laughs> like, whatever, whatever your particular view is, it ain't right. And this person said, I don't know, I think it's possible that the entire structure of my faith would just fall apart. And I thought, Wow. That's a lot of weight to be riding on being right. Now, here's the thing. Being right is not unimportant. I know that I want to be right when I choose this antibiotic rather than this antibiotic because I want to help the infants. I don't want to kill them, right? Being right is important if I'm going to build a bridge and I need to know the physics to make sure that the bridge doesn't collapse. But I want to suggest that being right is different than being loved. And that the things that we do in order to be right, in order to know, are all done in the service of being known. Being right is all done in the service 
of what it means for me to love the Lord my God and others with everything that I have. I want to be right in order for me to be a better lover. Does that make sense? And sometimes my insistence on being right is something that I do to cope with the fact that I don't feel very good as a lover. I use it to make up for my own sense of inadequacy. I use it to make up for my own sense of shame. I use it to cope with my sense that something within me is not going to be okay if I do not have this thing. In the book on shame and the anatomy of the soul, one of the things that I suggest is that the, um, the notion of shame, like the experience of shame, you know, uh, shows up in Genesis chapter 3, in the conversation between the snake and the woman. In that conversation, the, the notion of shame shows up before any fruit gets eaten. Shame is not just something that happens because we eat fruit. I want to suggest that the woman actually chose the fruit as a way to cope with the shame that emerges in the context of the conversation that takes place with the snake. Imagine this for a second. Imagine if you believe, for all of your life, for most of your life, you believe that you have had a great relationship with your father. I've had a patient or this, where this happened. A great relationship with your father. And then when you're 18, you find out that your father has a different family in another state, and you have half-siblings, and nobody has known about it. All you've known is that your dad is on the road a lot. What would that feel like? Check this out. What if it would be like that you think you've got a great relationship with your parents, and one day somebody comes in and says, like, as it turns out, like, your dad doesn't think you're all that much, as it, you know, after all. Because what I'm suggesting to you is that that is exactly what the, the tenor and the, and, the no, and, and, and the nature of the conversation that's taking place between the woman and the snake before any fruit gets eaten. And I want to suggest that if I'm that woman, like, I want to know, like, why on God's good green garden did somebody, for the love of him, did somebody not say, hey, wait a minute. Let's go get God and have a conversation about this. Like, why didn't they do that? But they didn't. And in her isolation and in his, the man's isolation, I want to suggest, and then it said, the text says, and she looked and saw that the fruit was good to the eye, pleasing to the eye, and good for wisdom. Like, who wouldn't want that if this was the thing that I had been feeling now in this conversation? Does that make sense? And so we choose things. We choose to know things. I'm going to do things. I'm going to choose a thing that I can be in charge of rather than be in relationship that has gotten me into trouble. So, oh, so this is what it means to be in love with God. I love God, and then, I, then these things happen. I think a fruit would be quite nice, thank you very much. And then this is what we just do repeatedly. We have dozens and dozens and dozens of coping strategies that we use to deliver us from shame. I'll stop with that. I got some for you now, pastorally, before we close, because we only got five more minutes, but I need to ask this. Um, in terms of uh, mental illness, um, that's something that pastorally, and I think even as a community, that sometimes we're ill-equipped, um, we're not well-informed, and this concept of being known and loving each other just keeps ringing in my head. And so, um, especially meeting with people in this room and in our congregation that really do um, struggle with mental illness. 
um, and uh, one particular friend um, having the conversation of how do I love you and how do we love you? Um, what does that look like and so forth? And so the question I have is um, how do you see God interacting with m- mental illness? And um, the sub-question to that is, is how should the church interact with it? Um, uh, uh, two things I would say. The first thing I would say is that um, if you really want helpful reflections on this, I would point you to a guy by the name of Warren Kinghorn. He is a psychiatrist that works at uh, Duke Medical Center and also uh, has a dual appointment at the Div School, the Divinity School there too. A friend of mine who's just really uh, done some really thoughtful work about this very question. So Warren Kinghorn is a, is a name to be thinking about. So um, when, I, uh, when I think about this, I think about um, John chapter 9. So in John chapter 9, um, uh, if, if you remember this, right? So, uh, and as they walked along, as they came along, they, they came along a, a man born blind, right? And then the story unfolds that the first question that gets asked by the disciples is, whose sin was it? Right? And you're thinking, like, why is their first reaction like, like Jesus, like, dude, like, like heal the guy. Like, we, we've got marketing to do here, right? Let's go. <laughs> and that's not their first question. It's whose sin was it? And then Jesus heals him. And after he heals him, literally, if you follow the trajectory of the rest of the chapter, all hell breaks loose in the community. Right? Because he's healed, and then the neighbors get all, like, their panties all up in a wad, and then they take him to the... You ever heard, never heard that phrase before? <laughs> and, then, um, and then they take him right to, to the legal team, and the legal team brings him in, and they bring the family in, and then brings him in again. And in the end, he's put out. He's excommunicated. He's put out of the congregation, at which point Jesus comes to find him. Now, I, I, I pay attention to this for the following reason, to this story. Um, Typically, uh, when people, uh, we, we say like, well, what is mental illness? And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not like there are neat categories for where like we either are or are not mentally ill. I mean, we, we could say like, look, we're all mentally ill. But really, it's just a matter of degree, right? I mean, seriously, like the, the degree, we, but we would say, but come on, Kurt, like there are some people, you, you have people who have schizophrenia or people who have bipolar disorder and they, there all these things, we can say, yeah, they have mental illness. They do. Uh, and one of the things that I, that I discover about this is that um, we, we see them as having a problem. It is frequently the case that people who have serious mental illness, interestingly enough, themselves have some sense that they have a problem. Sometimes they don't, though, right? Which can be a problem in and of itself. And so then we get to the point where we say, like, if I were to ask the question, well, who here has the problem? It's often not the patient. It's often their family. It's often the community. It's often the pastoral staff. It's often the elders. It's often those of us who are with a person who is not responding well to our collection of things that we know that we can do to solve this problem. Right? And at that point, we would, it would be fair to say we as the community don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. It's hard for us. But it's hard for us to admit that we don't know what to do, right? Because, like, we're the church, for, like, for heaven's sake, and we should be, like, doing something, right? This is really hard for us. And then we think about Mark 9, where Jesus comes off the Mount of Transfiguration, and he finds the disciples arguing with the Pharisees about 
the father who brings his son, and they can't do anything to help him. And at the end of that whole story, Jesus says, because they say, why couldn't we help? And he said, this is a problem that takes much fasting and prayer. Right? So all this to say is, like, there are no easy answers for this question, to answer this question. But what I would suggest is this. Um, it is crucially important that when we find ourselves in places where the road feels like there's just no way out, where the problem seems insurmountable, uh, being present in that space and learning to wait and pray in community, waiting for God's timing, is a crucially important spiritual discipline for us as a community. Now, we can, we can, you can say, well, send them to the community mental health center. We do this, do this, do this. And, like, we can come up with all this list, and they're still going to, like, not respond to that, right? Not respond to all the things that we've done. And we're left with being with each other and with them and in prayer, and that's about all we have. And we live in a culture where that is not acceptable. It is not acceptable to actually wait on God, just like it wasn't acceptable for Saul to wait for Samuel. We have to wait. Now, we don't, it's not that we're doing nothing. We're doing everything that we know how to do, and we do that, and then we wait. But if I've grown up in a family where uh, no one's ever come to me when I've had to wait for long periods of time, and no one's come to me, it's like, waiting is hard. Waiting is hard. But the more we practice, the better we get. Waiting is hard. But the more we practice, the better we get which is true for everything that we're doing as we co-labor with Jesus, waiting for his kingdom. Thank you. Um, so I'm supposed to, on the list here, have a moment of pastoral reflections. So oh, I'm gonna, good, your turn. Yeah. I love that. I'm going to try to do that. Um, so one, I think what's, what's been definitely convicting um, for myself and just for as a people is how isolated we are um, not just with technology, but in our own fear and crumpling of somebody actually knowing me and still loving me. Mm. Um, and I think just from a perspective of what the Spirit may be doing is our last first Wednesday speaker in December essentially said the same thing. Mm. Who was from D.C.? You guys must have a mm. vibrant community there. Well, like, so we're, all, we're all kind of uh, like alone and yeah. desperate. So yeah. <laughs> we all want to move here so we can like, do it the right way. And uh, so, so that, that, that's the, the sense of just having deep community and needing people around you and being able to wait on it. I think what we have here is you guys got the sign, so the parents are supposed to go get your kids. Um, is sometimes when we get in a community, like let's say a small group, and if you don't go to this church, whatever church you go to, we go, it didn't fit, this wasn't there, this wasn't there, this wasn't right, as opposed to being able to, to be able to wait and have the patience and practice what it looks like. That's one. Um, another thing is the nearness of people. I thought that was very interesting in thinking about the college students who did that survey when they're inside the, uh, the functional MRI that's, that's doing all those things and how if a, someone's close to them can hold their hand. And from someone who has worked incredibly hard at touch. Now, I know I got issues with touch. I do. We didn't hug. We didn't do those things in my family. And, and not that I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of another person touching me, but it works really well. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, th I think I think either the spirit or my brain or my soul that's detached is uh, making me nervous um, so yeah I think but I do I think I think I think touches I think touches there and then lastly 
the biggest takeaway for us is, is one, to be thankful if you were able to name those three people. Mm. That mm. when Dr. Thompson or, or Kurt, mm. uh, my man, mm. uh, <laughs> was able to was say that, if you were able to name those three, like consider yourself very, 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 very blessed. And if you were not, um, I think we need to continue to work on finding those people that know those things about us and that, mm. and we would even be able to reciprocate mm. those things to the people around us. And so mm. with that, I want to pray for you. Oh, um, and I, I, I think this was, this was like probably more soul care than it was anything else. And when you have a guy who knows about the brain, you think it's going to be no pun intended, super heady, but, uh, <laughs> but it was, it was, it was deeply heartfelt. And, um, mm. I'm, I'm thankful to God that, that, um, that, that you're here with us. And so before I, before I pray for you, I do want to say that this book is for sale for $15. It's going to get sold out tonight. So if you don't get a copy tonight, just go on Amazon or something or whatever it is. Just buy the book. Um, I read a lot of books. This is by far one of the better books I've read um, that's helpful and very, um, very fruitful to my soul. And so I do, I do, I do appreciate that. So um, before you hug me again, I'm going <laughs> to let's, let's mm. pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have created us, uh, body, mind, soul, mm. spirit. God, that you have given us your word that reminds us, Lord, that you reveal truth through your creation. Mm. And I'm thankful for the many men and women who are in this congregation, Lord, who are constantly um, being reminded of and are exploring, uh, being in awe of the beautiful truths of who you are through the creative things that uh, you have made, through the different fields that you've cast your mm. people into mm. to be mm. witnesses to the coming mm. kingdom. Mm. God, we thank you so much, God, that you um, have given us your word and more importantly, God, that you've given us your, your son, Jesus, and even experientially that you've given us the spirit that we may know you, that your spirit may cry out, Abba, Father. And Lord, as Kurt continues to touch on things and tell stories about relationships with fathers or parents and family, God, there's a sense of loss and pain that, that, that awakens in us, um, that we're reminded of our own lives, uh, positively and negatively, and, and we thank you that we can call you Abba. Um, that you never leave us nor forsake us. And so, Lord, the places in our life that we've talked about, Lord, that we won't go there with you or allow you to go there, God, may we be, as a community, open enough, transparent enough, vulnerable enough to allow the work of the Spirit to transform and to renew our minds. God, we thank you for Kurt. We ask a blessing upon his family, his travels, his vocation, his ministry, and that your anointing and your spirit be upon him, God. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys, thank you. Thank you so much. What do you guys think, Kurt? All right, you guys, have a good night, and we'll see you guys on Sunday.